It's my pleasure today to welcome back onto the channel Vlad Vixler, social philosopher and unique voice on YouTube. Our previous conversations proved to be extremely popular, but a lot has happened since we last spoke. Now, please do check out Vlad's channel on YouTube. It's a collection of some of the most thought-provoking and insightful videos on the Russian mindset and the roots of the war. And of course, please do like and subscribe and comment on the videos because that really does help to push them up YouTube's algorithm. And also please do check out the verified charities, Ukrainian charities that we put in the description of each video. Many of them are working with veterans of the war and also various civilian causes to help keep Ukraine resilient in this second year, coming into the third year of the full-scale invasion. Vlad, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you back. Thank you so much for having me back, John. Well, this is a great privilege, and I think the audience are going to be hugely pleased to uh, see a conversation uh, back on the channel. But a lot has happened. We've had Prigozhin's mutiny. We've had um, extraordinary Ukrainian wins, but also a certain uh, so-called stagnation and what seems to be a change of tactics. And just last week, we've had Tucker Carlson uh, going to Moscow, which is one of the things we're going to be unpacking here. Um, and of course, the dismissal of General Zaluzhny, which seems to have provoked quite a lot of, uh, say, press speculation and perhaps some over-emotional language. But let's let's start with the channel. Um, you know, from seeing the channel over two years, uh, the style has changed. Uh, I think my jumpers are the same. Um, but uh, quite a lot's happened in in two years of development on Silicon Curtain and your own channel yes. as well. And um, I'm very grateful that you're now going to let me um, do something for a, probably three or four minutes that I think is going to. I think actually elevate the conversation that we're going to have um, afterwards. And I think that everybody watching this is kind of scared, not because, not only because the world's going in all kinds of really worrying directions, but because the way we talk about the world also scares us. I mean, we're living through a kind of epistemological apocalypse where we are aware that we're locked into ways of engaging with each other and ways of talking about the world that might undermine the very problems we're trying to solve. And I think people feel an enormous amount of fear about that. I think everybody at home knows what I'm talking about. I think your regular engagement with your audience teaches you exactly that. That's, I think, what began my conversation with 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 the public in the last couple of years and so what we are often seeing is a situation where experts and content creators are vulnerable to the whims and pressures of algorithms and audience capture and that's an incredibly difficult environment to negotiate both both ways for the audience and for um, content creators, for journalists, for experts, for academics speaking in public. And I think we need enormous humility toward one another when we drift, when we slip. And a visceral conversation is something that's really important about 
how we stay on track and about trust about you know what it is we're doing in 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 amongst these currents that are dragging us in all kinds of different directions and the truth is that most people drift um and it's not about being sound in integrity it's also about a kind of stability and a kind of alertness and i wanted to do something that will seem a bit conflictual to the audience and then you're going to be fine with it uh just for a couple of minutes to um almost demonstrate how important it is for us to have a visceral conversation about this about trust so with the corner of my eye because um, i don't have the chance to you know watch the majority of your videos i've, I've Observed I'm a, a little things. prolific, let's say. So I wouldn't expect uh, a lot of people to watch most of them. Uh, it's one a day. I mean, it's a huge amount of material. And what I've observed are, I think, examples of that situation when we're on a little floating mattress a blow-up mattress in the sea and we just get taken out a little bit you know from 20 meters out to 30 meters out without fully noticing you tweeted and i'm picking an example that's not entirely unrepresentative in response to something that a, a, a lovely man called Yanis kluger said which is that russia is strong and we need to prepare for that and you called Yanis, a clown by day job and a pander and bootlicker to, to global imperialists. You've also called for John Mearsheimer, who has views that I'm incredibly antipathic to on, on this vital of global issues. You called for his academic affiliation to be removed from him and it's my job to extend extend a hand to you when that mattress drifts a couple of meters too far because nobody's more hawkish on russia than yanis kluger actually i mean this is a guy who says we must never negotiate with russia and these are not criminal offenses they are part of that balance that is incredibly difficult to strike. That is for 95% of people in this environment, impossible to strike right all the time. And I think that modeling public open conversation about this uh, is a, a, an enormous, an enormous benefit to our audiences and a part of the recognition of the, the sacredness of the audience, not the sacredness of what they think of what they're consuming, because that's always uh, something that's a matter of exploration, but the, the, the fact that we're taking them very seriously and that um, they really, really matter. And then the other things I have seen are just light, um, you know, the Russian army is the fourth best army in Ukraine. Um, let's not have too many questions about Prigozhin and Girkin because that's imperialist. There's nothing. That, I mean, that's really 
not a criminal offense by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a certain theatricity of discourse um, that needs to eventually dock back to one of two enterprises. Either there is an enterprise of expertise and commentary and analysis, which is one thing, or there is an enterprise of advocacy. And the point of advocacy is to help Ukraine. And what I want you to do is not necessarily respond to me now, but let what I have said somehow sit in you and see if that see if it goes anywhere. Um, because I think that th this extension of the hand is incredibly important. And I also want to say how important it is for people to keep engaging with each other, um, whether something comes up like a, a disagreement or a difference in style or I've fallen off the step and you've got to come and help me a bit. I think that's incredibly important. Um, I have certainly had plenty of correspondence with my own community telling me who I should or shouldn't speak to. And it'll be absolutely clear that um, we have to keep our circle of engagement as wide as possible. And we have to put um, compassion at the center of it toward the fact that we're all dealing with a very, very difficult environment. And it's irrelevant to me if you say, well, you know what, I'm going to, I don't have a problem with what you've noticed. I, I, I'm proud of it. I don't have a problem with that. But it's my responsibility to, to say it. And it's my responsibility to my own audience also to model visceral engagement about this in public. So there you go. I think that this, this has been really, really, really precious for the audience. And I think most people wouldn't mutually participate in the kind of exchange we've participated in. The floor is yours. And I'm not going to come back. If you challenge me, I'm not going to come back and justify myself. I'm done. So the floor <laughs> is yours and you're in charge. I think it's fascinating. And I'll, I'll... I'll absolutely take that on board because um, I think there's a bit of a, a split, I think, in my personality here, which is that the channel happened incredibly quickly and it happened um, or it's grown beyond any expectation I had for it. And I kind of think of myself as engaging with an audience on YouTube. I still feel sort of almost as if I'm compartmentalized my head. I don't feel I have any audience on Twitter. Um, so yeah, the comments you, you've mentioned are absolutely there. And you know, when you've hit send on them, like, it's like, oops, but what the hell, you know, let it fly. It's almost like you're in the bar and you've had a few drinks and you, you, you say things that you wouldn't say if you hadn't had a few drinks, as it were. And I find Twitter to me mentally is like that. It, it's almost as if it's totally separate from the channel the channel's kind of grown up rapidly and I have a sense of the audience. When I first did the channel, I, I'd, I'd, I'd actually perhaps respond far too robustly to some of the trolls. Now, I don't respond to most of uh, the negative stuff on there. Or if I do, it's with a sort of gentle sarcasm. Uh, so I don't get sort of triggered on there. But I find Twitter incredibly triggering. I'll be completely honest. I don't think of it as part of the ecosystem with the channel. And I also find it incredibly triggering. But actually, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I probably reached that point where I shouldn't 
think of myself as having several personas. It, it's all public now because of the way the channel has has grown. I said I wouldn't come back and I no, won't, but I'd like say to one, come back. I'll, no, yeah. I won't. But I'll just say one thing. Where this really matters is on YouTube because that is overwhelmingly your main platform. So however what I've said percolates in you is really only of significance, I think, for this major central platform that you're on. And I do think that we can be both very proud of each other for the possibility to exchange like that because virtually nobody would, quite frankly. No. Um, so um, I'm grateful to you for presenting the floor to me on your platform for that kind of exchange. And it also shows something else, which is that conflict can be a form of cooperation and that engaging in conflict can be actually an mutually elevating enterprise. Um, and, you know, I'm also enormously grateful when people come along and challenge me when I've slipped off a step. And I think that, you know, we've got to, we've got to snap out of this idea that, um, you know, we um, turn away and re redirect ourselves from something we don't find fully comfortable. I believe we have to go right into it, especially in this very precious environment where we're all incredibly informationally vulnerable. Um, you know, we we all are almost living with a kind of, now I'm allowed to say this because of my health history, we're all living with a kind of almost informational disability where we have to be very precious um, uh, to each other because we're, we're all trying to roll a boulder up the hill. Um, so thank you. No, I definitely appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I think what you've identified here is elements of my personality, which, uh, uh, you know, as you become more of a, a public figure and less of a private one, I think it's important to, to examine. But also I think there's an interesting point you make here, which is about effective communication, because it's also kind of become clear as I've been doing this, that we're part of a pro-Ukraine bubble. Um, that the audience for the kind of stuff we've doing, it's, it's been growing or been growing within the bubble and people become awareness, you know, aware of what we've been doing. But in some total, the amount of people that fully engage with the war, fully engage with the existential risks that come from this uh, conflict with Russia um, has not perhaps grown significantly. It's, it's, it still retains a kind of core set of people who are interested in it, and yet we can feel that it's far, far larger. And I think that's perhaps led to a certain amount of, dare I say, sort of desperation and concern as we've started to realise that, and we've started to realise that actually there is no major strategy amongst Western policymakers on how Ukraine should win and what should happen to Russia afterwards. Um, Ukrainians may have a clear idea of that, although we, we may come to that in a minute, because under the glare of normal political cut and thrust, that perhaps is also becoming challenged. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it's a fairly terrifying realisation as you emerge from this Ukrainian bubble that it's it's not as big as it ought to be and the world is not paying the attention that perhaps we think is appropriate to the scale of the risk uh, that is going on and, and suffering, of course. Well, that happens to be my view. Um, but it's difficult because 
the path to the solution of the problem is incredibly demanding and is actually quite connected with some of the things that I was just I was just saying earlier, focusing on real change. Um, and it's no harm in being an advocate either, but the advocacy can be more or less effective. It can help Ukraine a bit or uh, or not. And when we begin to wander in that direction, ask questions like, what's a win for Ukraine? Or what's a very good outcome for Ukraine? We still run into a lot of what I would call political infantilization, where a win is something that looks pretty on the map, or a win is just an outcome that looks very good, but doesn't come with a clear picture of how we can arrive at it. Um, and I'm not saying that if you think politically, you're going to discover a solution, but I'm saying that thinking politically is the only way you're going to get to a solution. So let's try to build this up. I personally think that Ukraine wins if a chain of things happens. If the ex-Soviet space is reformed, and if a destructive authoritarian imperialism is pushed out of it, and that means the whole lot, Russia and Belarus, Ukraine can't win properly without that happening. For that to happen, there needs to be a rearrangement of the international order for which the West needs a strategy. For that to happen, a rearrangement of the international order and a development of a coherent strategy that the West has, so that it's not Middle East crisis on a Tuesday, Eastern Europe on a Wednesday, and for goodness sake, maybe China on a Friday. Um, for that to happen, we need a bit of calm and solidarity in our democracies. So it needs what I call democratic capacity. So wow, that is a difficult chain. So you've got to, you've got to transform the ex-Soviet space. You've got to have the West offering a new picture of the international order because the previous picture is what generated this war, quite frankly, insofar as it was in place and practice. And then for that generation of a strategy and reimagination of the international order, you need a bit more democratic capacity. So quite frankly, nobody could be optimistic about that chain receiving follow through over the next half, half, half a decade or even half a century, perhaps. But that's one block with which we have to start. And this is not a binary all or nothing thing. We can make progress with it as long as we're honest about what our limitations are. And that's, I think, one very important bucket. There, there is then a second bucket that is easier. It's not perfectly easy, but it's easier. And that is a richer public conversation about what the 
motivations and the, if you like, structured intent of the Kremlin is. That's to say, what are they locked into? And here we have a conversation of, among a small bubble of experts who debate how constitutively linked regime security and foreign escalation are for the Kremlin. So for instance, somebody like Greg Yudin and myself, for example, think it is very tightly linked. Mark Galeotti is probably a little more skeptical of that link. Um, others are yet more skeptical, but this is a very important conversation to have. But what the answer to that conversation is should absolutely inform policy because it quite frankly uh, will be the case that the answer to that question will reveal what Russia, whatever happens to it, gets up to over the next decade. Now, the, the primary Western response on day one and this happens to, I think, be Biden's personal response, but it's it's become rather ubiquitous, was let's minimize the risk of nuclear war and let's not over-philosophize what the Russians are up to. Let's almost create a little box and say, well, we don't know what's going on. Let's just look at their actions and respond. We don't need a theory of what they're up to. Maybe it's NATO, maybe they've got triggered by this or that, but how can we know we've got to act we've got to start responding and quite quite frankly that's a very good place to start relative to the fact that so often politics is hard to know what's going on because of this really rapid rotation and um, you could have an administration that begins to get a good picture of what russian agency is about and then it gets changed over to the next one. It almost starts from zero. And I agree uh, with Fiona Hill, who often makes this point about going back to zero with the change that occurs in democratic governance. But we haven't moved very far since that original Biden position um, on the question of what we think the Russians are doing. We haven't even moved to the point where we say, we know how important getting the answer to that question is, whatever that answer is. There have been a few few moves. I still think there's a little bit more clarity about these issues in countries that are closer to Russia's borders. <laughs> they are more awake to, to some of these, these issues. But I think we're in, in trouble with that conversation too. But that is much easier to do. Um, that is not something that's about pushing through complex policies, through institutions that are going to resist you because nobody trusts them. This is easier. This is about figuring out what the hell is going on. And so we can make progress at that level. And more importantly, we can make progress within limits in that chain, ex-Soviet space global strategy democratic capacity. I'd like to dig into that because what you're outlining here is something pretty radical that needs to happen. And you've mentioned this idea of a democratic sort of uh, deficiency, or you need a certain sort of, um, dare I say it, sort of, uh, you need certain democratic forces or energy or will or whatever, however you want to define that, to then be able to take the right leadership position 
it seems to me, however, we've got a challenge here, which is that rather than showing leadership, rather than trying to, you know, in a proverbial chess game, get ahead several moves or look what's happening, it seems to me that actually most Western governments and, and probably led by Biden and his advisors are performing a far more managerial role. They're managing risk. They're managing escalation. They're managing all sorts of imaginary things that might or might not happen. Um, and that is affecting their decisions, affecting their decisions to rearm, affecting their decisions on how to push back on Russia or whether to push back. Um, and it does seem very much that it's a management process rather than a leadership process. Does this link back to the precarious and fragile democratic state that we've got, that they perhaps either the system produces the wrong people or doesn't give them the mandate to adopt real leadership positions, uh, or that if they feel they're too bold on the leadership front, they're going to lose uh, that support, that fragile support uh, within, uh, you know, within their with their audience and their electorates. So, I think what I very importantly believe about this is that this is not a failure of will, and I treat experts as sacred um, because we're dependent on them for truthful critique without which democracies don't work. At the same time, there's a certain risk in an endless number of interventions by experts, some of whom we, we know in person and, and really, really um, admire, there's a risk of an endless number of interventions that make a very clear case for why we need to reckon with the threat coming out of the Kremlin and then appeal to, if you like, our moral fortitude. Come on. We're talking some of the talk. Where's the walk? And I feel that the problem doesn't lie in an application of willpower, which always makes a difference, of course, and clarity of vision always makes a difference. But I feel that a central obstacle is the low degree of trust we have for institutions in our societies. And I observed conversation not long ago uh, involving all kinds of interesting people, I think Neil Ferguson, Steve Kotkin, and they were sort of throwing about the idea of what kind of political speech would the President of the United States need to make to convey with clarity what this Russian invasion of Ukraine is really about and where the US national interest comes in. And I sat there feeling, I suspect Stephen Kotkin probably sat there feeling the same thing, that that to some degree would work in the 1990s, but today it would risk being too much like writing out a check for payment in a society that doesn't have the institution of money. It's that friction, right, that you would normally have in a society with a high level of solidarity, with some capacity for um, cross-party support for international policy positions. Right? Our absence about all of this our deep degree of polarization, our 
deep doubts that our own political institutions are serving us, our deep doubt that they're even intelligible, that they even make sense when we look at them, make the idea of buying into these institutions, laying out a very ambitious strategy, which are then going to be, they're going to be implementing at significant economic cost as well. You could argue there's going to be an economic gain down the line, sure, but it's not going to feel like it straight away. Well, that is a very, very, very big stretch, and you cannot solve it unless you solve the crisis of trust. And we can't solve the crisis of trust. We can negotiate it better or worse. And so I think that the modes to cut to the chase here without going on even longer, the mode of conversation about Russia's invasion of Ukraine needs to be fit for purpose vis-a-vis -vis the kind of crisis of trust we're facing. It doesn't mean we can't talk about it, we can't make the case, we can't ask for a strategy, but it means the way we do this has to be really sensitive to our democratic instability and to the deep polarization and distrust. And that can mean several things, but one very simple thing it means is speaking in a very ordinary and very straight and simple way with citizens and appealing to their intelligence and um, doing so in a way that on the one hand respects institutions, but on the other hand, sounds a little like a kitchen table conversation of, you know, could we make some time to discuss this Here's the deal. Here's the deal, and this is why we gotta we gotta face it. And that is um, a difficult enterprise. It's difficult to do this, but um, we've got to we've got to start doing it more. And again, the 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 best way to do it beyond just mode and style is to attach it to a realistic but aspirational picture of how we want to reimagine the international order. Um, and that means refreshing some old conversations um, about how we think of ourselves on the international stage and using any opportunity to do that. My community asked a, a question that surprised me a few weeks ago about the ethical status of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs dropped on Japan. And one of the thoughts I had immediately, it's completely an original thought, um, is how valuable it would be for a public conversation in the United States about this. And why is that valuable? Not because we want to get the, the story right on the atomic bombs, that's important too, but it's secondary. It's because it raises questions of what principles do we subscribe to? What are our responsibilities? How has this changed since then? And where do we want this to go? Um, so, you know, um, we are facing social forces that are making democratic life difficult, which is always going to make strategizing difficult. But at the same time, it is also to some extent true that how we describe our political situation conditions what it actually is. There is this 
20% degree of a kind of a postmodern truth, if you like, about politics, that the way we talk about it is going to decide what the reality of it is. And we have to exploit that better. And that's extremely timely. And that leads me into two topics, Sarah, two maybe even moral conundrums. And that is the fierce debate about whether Tucker Carlson should have gone to interview Vladimir Putin at all. Unlike his pronouncement that nobody had bothered to do that, of course, um, seasoned journalists have been lining up for a couple of years to try and get these interviews. And it's not going to happen because my suspicion here is that Putin does not want somebody who's going to come and grill him in an aggressive, well-informed manner. Um, so there's that argument there about should Carlson even have done that? But also, is he a journalist? Um, is this process tantamount to treason, etc.? And I know where we're going to sort of go with this, because, of course, those who are in the in the Ukraine bubble are immediately going to kind of attack MAGA, Carlson and the rest. Almost it's an inverse process of othering your opponent. And then Russia becomes the demon. Russia becomes the force that is destabilizing internal politics. Russia is becoming the malign force that is tearing apart our institutions and trust in them. Whereas I know from your videos and from trying to sort of think about this and, and talking with people like David Satter who have a much more nuanced view like you do on this, our domestic institutions perhaps do not need uh, pressure to degrade them. Tucker Carlson is doing this for really sort of purely domestic uh, benefit. He's seen a, an advantage here. Um, but we tend to project all our ills onto Russia, um, which perhaps is neither a strategic nor powerful nor organized enough to take us apart. You know, we're doing rather a good job of that our, ourselves. Um, but what's your sense about the morality of what happened last week? And did it teach us anything at all? Was there anything worthwhile that we can look at that interview and say, okay, well, it was worth it because we learned X, Y, Z? I think there isn't much political morality in what Tucker did because he's not institutionally affiliated. I think there is a lot of ethical commentary we can make that would probably have to end up on my philosophy channel. Um, and I think we don't need to go there. Quite frankly, Tucker is not affiliated to a journalistic institution. So it's hard for me to evaluate what kind of a professional failure or, or otherwise it was. Tucker is an entrepreneur. Tucker is a good model, not just of a public figure in the political sphere, but he is a good model of the kind of political leader Western countries are increasingly going to have. I'm not saying Tucker will be president of the United States someday, but he's a good model of the kind of entrepreneurial ethic that is going to increasingly come with politics. Trump illustrates that pretty well too. So if we were to raise the same question in an institutional setting, if the Washington Post sent somebody to interview Putin, what would I think about that? I think it'd be a brilliant idea to interview Putin. Um, and then one would ask, has the interview gone well? And for it to go well, you would need to ask some good questions, not trivial gotcha questions, but questions that are helpful for us. It's not helpful to demonize Putin. Um, the people who think he is already a, a pretty dark figure, going to keep thinking that and 
demonizing him isn't going to help people who are on the fence in the West, of, of which there are a lot. But that interview would have needed to be journalistically robust, not an audience with Mr. Putin, which he himself roughly curates, with the exception of a couple of questions that, that, that Tucker puts in. So I struggle to say anything about the morality of it on Tucker's side, because quite frankly, Tucker is not a journalist. He's not affiliated with a journalistic institution, nor is he psychologically a journalist. He is an entrepreneur. And I think that the morality, or at least the sort of evaluation of it that is interesting, is on Putin's side. And on Putin's side, I believe the interview was... a. Uh, a massive missed opportunity and a massive flop. Um, and there are two arguments here that I think people want to focus on. One is, what's he done to undermine support for Ukraine? And I've seen talk about this, but I think something is an even more important goal for Putin, and that is to just generally undermine trust in the West to spend two hours telling us that we're being betrayed by our leaders and that our institutions are opaque to us and that we have lost any connection with what a truly healthy and functional and marvelous West is. And we've got to wake up to it. And Putin failed to deliver on that dramatically. He could have pushed that message down properly, and he didn't. I mean, I could have written a speech for him that would have been 10 times more destructive, that could have potentially um, introduced a 0.1% differential into the 24 presidential election. I thought Putin's effort was spectacularly weak, and that was scary because it was weak out of, first of all, a lack of prep, he wasn't prepped for this. And either that's because nobody got round to it or because he told people not to bother him with that. And then not being prepped for it, he spoke in a compulsive way. I mean, what was scary about that first 35 minutes of, you know, um, a, a, a deep dive into sort of... Um, ill-assorted bits of history sellotaped together was how compulsive it was and how genuinely unbearable Putin found to be interrupted by Carlson with the suggestion that he should try to relate what he's saying to the current situation in the world. And Putin found that almost unbearable. So we saw, in my judgment, a, a leader increasing increasingly caught up in his own quasi-mystical visions. And I think that was so bad that it, it, it felt to me worse even than when Putin was a year ago. Um, so I, I sensed a little bit of a deterioration. Um, now, the last comment I'll make on this is that I do think that Tucker's conduct is one that plays into the hands of the Kremlin, but it is mostly motivated by domestic American politics, which is why 
if you want to criticize it, if you want to dismantle it, if you want to attack it, if you want to, you know, sort of viscerally critically engaged with it, engage with it, and you're an American citizen, you've got to treat it as being mostly organic. You can't just say none of this matters because this has been um, concocted by the Kremlin. Well, no, you're talking about millions of fellow citizens. Um, and you see underneath all of this misinformation that an exchange like that generates, there are citizens who buy into it, not because they really know much about Russia or Putin, but because they're feeling a loss of a loss of trust. Um, we don't want to get too carried away because the internet misrepresents um, societies at large. So even if we see 700 comments of, isn't Putin so much more articulate than Biden, which is true, um, wasn't true in 2016, but it's true today, um, that doesn't represent society as a whole. But we've got to take these people, we nevertheless have got to take these people seriously. I think what, what this interview feeds into is you know real fear among millions of Americans that their institutions are betraying them and that their institutions are drifting at a at a distance from them and perhaps a whole bunch of magical thinking about how Putin might be offering some solutions um, which of course is uh, false. Um, the ultimate problem with a sort of a visceral moral condemnation of Tucker is a Tucker engaged in an entrepreneurial act. I think somebody who was genuinely out to make the world a better place, and we could feel that that was the intent, but then who landed in a puddle like that, we could be more critical of them. But Tucker is engaged in an entrepreneurial enterprise, and he is surfing the waves of public opinion, the waves of the algorithms, and I think the interview probably flopped for Tucker too, but not as much as not as much as for Putin. What didn't flop for Tucker is the fact that it happened and the extraordinary coverage of it globally, and now his capacity to milk it and to use it as a prop for months and years to come. Indeed, um, but I think we were lucky because it could have done a lot of damage, and it did minimal damage in my judgment. It's extraordinary, isn't it, when you say the machinery of Putin's speech writers. I once uh, spent several hours in the pub talking to someone who was a low-level researcher within Putin's speech writing machine, and she described to me the mechanics of it, and it involves multiple layers of editorial. Uh, and this is where, you know, for instance, uh, where he went to the Black Sea and, you know, uncovered some kind of archaeological wonders and all these kind of stage managed things, which we could we can kind of laugh at. But actually, they're extraordinarily or were extraordinarily effective, but they were also very crafted. So you'd get the low level researcher who may have a Ph.D. and, you know, archaeology of Black Sea civilizations or whatever or trade routes. And they would write a purely factual script. So, so I was described the process. And then it would go through a series of stages where people will become ever more, I would say, political. You know, you'd get political technologists on subsequent edits, crafting, keeping a factual stuff in, but crafting the message subtly, mixing in with kind of agendas and things they want. So the end product, which essentially Putin then used to deliver, was an incredibly effective kind of mixture of of fact and fantasy and, and whatever. From what you describe here, it seems that that machinery is probably there, 
but he may well have got so dislocated from reality, dislocated from his own um, infrastructure, people distrustful of them. Seems to me he's throwing away the scripts and kind of ad libbing and going down all these rabbit holes. It's almost like not just the banality of evil, you know, banality of evil. It's the absolute tedium of evil because he was really, really boring, wasn't he? I mean, he, he really it was tedious. It's tedious, not. It's obviously yeah. not banal. It's not no. banal to orchestrate an invasion of a neighboring country. But if you look at the sort of temporal breakdown of the interview, we had that half an hour of history lessons we probably then had an hour of stories about what a victim putin is and how he's got repeatedly tricked by the west and then we had half an hour on how it is counterproductive for the west to be mean to russia but of these three blocks a single biggest block was this block about how victimized putin is by a west that has repeatedly tricked him and I do think that uh, a sense of resentment and uh, frustration about his story not being heard, his historical story not being heard, the sellotaped historical porridge that he's caught up in, that not being taken seriously is is something that Putin finds painful and insulting and he, because he thinks that he is russia very roughly he thinks that he is the instantiation of the collective sense of realization of the country he thinks it's a very big affront to russia to russian culture and how embarrassing this is but this is what we're dealing with uh, it, it's a great affront to russian culture that this stuff is not being taken seriously and he felt compelled to get it out so it was extraordinarily unconstructive what he did it was a kind of a rectification of, a, of an injustice well no we're not monsters here here's where we're coming from we've got all of these bits of glued together um historical narrative and they get us here and once you get these narratives properly you'll actually see that um we're the victim we're fighting a defensive war and in fact, we're not even fighting a war we started. Um, we're defending ourselves. And he roughly believes that. And he is roughly convinced of the primacy of all of that stuff. And it's only secondarily a, a, a scary thing that his historical account is BS. What's even more scary than that is the idea of giving a primacy to any historical account um, of this sort that immediately plugs it into, you know, global everyday political decisions. That level of immersion in history, even if it were three times more truthful than Putin's is, would still be um, a constitutive political calamity and would be an enormous danger to the world. Um, so it's how he caught up here in it that is i think an even bigger danger problem than um the fact that uh it, it's so full of falsehoods and i can't help escaping the idea that fundamentally there's a clash of systems here uh democratic representative democracy versus whatever that system is that putin's built but it's 
that's one level. But simply put, you know, as Karl Popper would say, the mechanic is the thing here. It's the mechanic of removing a leader because all of Putin's paranoia, his resentment, his victimhood, if there was a mechanism to remove him from power after, say, his second term and there was, say, a, a proper term limit, he'd be sitting in some sanatorium, you know, boring the attendants stupid, but he'd be nowhere near the levers of power. All this stuff wouldn't matter because you, you you have a mechanism to sweep away people like that. Um, it sweeps away perhaps good people who could deserve, you know, a third or fourth term. But fundamentally what we've got here is the lack of a mechanic, the lack of any kind of pushback to remove someone from the Kremlin. And as we know, those who spend too long in somewhere as ancient and uh, perhaps malign as the Kremlin or with that much power, with people uh, afraid already to, to sort of, you know, question you or, or give you a version of the reality that challenges the model in your head. It's almost, I feel, an inevitability you end up in this place with someone who is is detached and, and in this sense, sort of, you know, malign, paranoid, with an increasingly small circle of people he trusts. I think power does co-opt and corrupt in that way. But I think that Putin's mystical vision is more a product of individual contingency. Somebody else in an equivalent political biography may have just been a cynical tyrant. Um, I think that the, the, this level of sort of e e immersion in... Um, mystical visions um, is something that we could have avoided. We could have been relatively lucky, at least, and got a, a more cynical, pragmatic tyrant. Um, I think it's easy to develop th these visions, too, in this sort of extraordinary dynamic of um, isolation. So uh, absolutely, that's conducive to unlimited power and isolation is conducive to paranoia and grandiosity, um, but this immersion in quasi-mystical visions, I think, is something we've we've got unlucky with. Um, we've got that we've got that on top, and it's something we could see in Putin emerge somewhere between 2010 and 2014. I feel, and when it emerged, it was still checked by a little bit more of a, a sense of a, a sense of a need to dialogue between his own instincts and the way the world worked. Um, and later on, he just decided that his own instincts were the only way to go about doing anything in this world. And um that kind of means we need a strategy here, because if you have someone who has descended into, into that view of the world, and it is, it's extremely strong sense of victimhood um, that's going on there, and that then propagates and is amplified through propaganda very much. And there's a huge sense of this victimhood in a lot of the propagandistic narratives, which really, you know, when it becomes, I would say, sort of carcinogenic, when it metastasizes, it turns into the sort of genocidal rhetoric we're hearing. Surely we need a 
robust strategy against that. And there are, there are two sets of voices I seem to hear above all others. One is, well, the person that replaces Putin may be worse. Uh, and that tends to be the kind of status quo, more, I guess, realist point of view, which is like, you know, be careful what you wish for. Let's just manage the situation. You, you don't want something worse going on there. And, you know, Patrushev and others may be worse than Putin. On the other hand, you've got the view, which I think many or most of the Ukrainians I've spoken to subscribe to, which is perhaps an overly optimistic, perhaps unrealistic view that Russia will collapse, must collapse, has to collapse, not only to save Ukraine, but to uh, save Russians themselves. So you have these two extremes of wishing for status quo and wishing for complete collapse and fragmentation. Do you feel the reality is somewhere in between or we need other strategic models for what we want to happen? Because these two seem to be, to my mind, rather undesirable states. I think I made a, a kind of attempt to um, mediate between these in the last video I shared on the main channel. I think that as far as Western centers of power are concerned, one of two things happened. Either we landed in a place of not being confident enough to create an existential situation for Putin, or we landed in a place where we made a conscious decision to not create an existential situation for Putin. And which of the two it is depends, I think, on which bits of which administration we're talking about in which country. Um, but as much as there's a difference between these two positions, the practical outcome is that Certainly, we didn't push as hard as we could have done during the period of vulnerability the regime suffered for about a year and a half during the war. That vulnerability is gone now. Um, so we are not in a position where we could press the regime into um, a dynamic of real precarity the way we could have done a few, a few months ago. So that's Again, a missed opportunity relative to an absence strategy. But that's where we landed. Um, and when I say let's not make things um, existential for Putin, I mean let's not create situations which significantly bring about a risk of him losing power. But, of course, there are three possibilities of collapse in the Russian space. One is the regime collapsing. The other is the state collapsing. In some historical moments, the one leads to the other, as happened in Iraq. In others, it doesn't. And the third scenario is a kind of state fragmentation. So my own view is that while I don't make policy recommendations, just cartoonishly paint the simple picture within the bounds of moderating nuclear risk my recommendation would have been to make things existential as existential as possible for the putin regime i think that we are very uncomfortable to go there we have a very ghastly and lovely and counterproductive history of a relationship with regime change in the west 
And nobody's talking about regime change, physical regime change in Russia going in. Nobody's going to go into Russia and do that. But the idea that we are committed to a change of regime in Moscow is in this, but not in many other cases, but in this case, something that I would argue for. At the same time, I think that um, it's counterproductive to call for the um, collapse of Russia um, in the sense of Russia falling apart into lots of little countries, mainly because that is an historical event to which we would need to react if it were to occur. My own view is actually that I'm not one of those people who says it's not even serious to raise the question. I actually believe it is possible to raise the question. Um, while I think that there's virtually no demand for secession in Russia among ethnic minorities, indeed, today, I believe that the continued recklessness of the Putin regime is likely to generate some secession momentum in Russia over the next few years. I see that as almost inevitable, not that it'll materialize into secession, but that there'll be mobilization behind towards secession. Uh, I see that as almost inevitable if the Putin regime continues going the way it's going. And what I mean by that specifically is that this lull that the Putin regime has created for itself, where it's now relatively stable, is not sustainable for it on my analysis. It's going to create another situation of tension and escalation, good and for itself. It'll be an interesting question what we do at that point um, but even when that happens, um, it, it is possible that the recklessness of the regime, the destructiveness of the regime, and the spectacular aversion to any decentralization, federalization, will lead some people to say, well, for goodness sake, if we're not going to engage in some decentralization, um, maybe we just want out. Um, so we might we might land there. Um, I, I would have a very pessimistic prognosis for Russia breaking up. I think it would be more likely than not to be so not just for people on that territory, but for, for Ukraine and for us um, in the sense of a multiplicity of multi-agent civil wars, refugee flows, um, you name it. But if it happens, it happens and we've got to react to it. So I'm not somebody who says that it's it's unserious to even raise the possibility. What I say is that we 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 shouldn't call for it, um, because that doesn't really help anybody. I think calling it is the political equivalent of fantasizing about a peaceful ocean next to Ukraine, and you might as well say, "I want a peaceful ocean." Then, I mean, that is that's going to have roughly the the same effect. Um, there is one exception to this, and that's of course that ethnic minorities in Russia themselves can call for it. Um, but because in that case, it would be not us trying to impose something on uh, a, a community that we don't belong to, but it would be a case of a community making demands that are part and parcel of its self-determination. And then that would be absolutely, absolutely legitimate. The trouble, I mean, 
there's a risk of talking about Ukraine excessively as outsiders because we feel so much empathy for the extraordinarily difficult situation Ukrainians are in. But I believe that Ukrainians, of course, should be interested in politicizing the Russian space in any way they can. And they should also be interested in the constructive conversation among themselves about who they are and where they're going. And of course, there's a risk that rather abstract and fanciful notions like 30 countries appearing in Russian territory could distract from these real and meaningful political conversations. Um, in other words, I don't see how it undermines the Putin regime to talk about Russia becoming many little countries, because it's not going to become that through you talking about it. Um, it's going to become that through some kind of momentum on the ground, which today is absent. I think the Ukraine example, if uh, and I, I suspect some of the Russian opposition pay attention to what happened in Ukraine over the last 30 years. Some perhaps don't pay quite enough, or they say that you know the Russian solution needs to be unique to Russia, etc. Then the Ukraine example shows that you need a significant number of people to become politically activated, and not just through a single process. It's not going to happen overnight. But of course, Ukraine's had multiple revolutions. It's ebbed backwards and forwards with changes of presidents being more, uh, you know, east-leaning, west-leaning. It's flip-flop backwards and forwards, right up to the point where Zelensky has, uh, through his TV program, through his advocacy, has been able to create, I would say, a certain amount. And I've got Olga Orange coming onto the channel uh, next week to talk about her book, a Zelensky Effect. But it's quite an extraordinary series of multi-layered processes that have led to the sort of Ukrainian resilience that we see now, a country able to resist this extraordinary uh, invasion and not fall apart or not have its government decapitated and you know shrug the shoulders and not care. This kind of, uh, I would say, involvement, uh, civic involvement, political involvement has taken decades and decades plus hundreds of years of history and culture behind it to allow that to happen. And as you say, that's not going to happen overnight. You know, it's a process, a multi-generational process, perhaps in Russia, for similar organic politics to develop in that way. Are we perhaps rather naive, naive in the way we were when we thought, you know, democracy would 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 spring in Iraq or Afghanistan if we just sort of topple a regime and but you know, build some institutions, pump some money, and you're suddenly going to get this flower of democracy. Doesn't Ukraine show us that it is far, far more complex than than perhaps most Western politicians understand? So how can we have a strategy? How can we try and engineer any kind of solution where we barely understand the mechanics of this kind of uh, democratic renaissance that's happened in Ukraine ourselves? I think there are two distinct issues there. One is democratization, one is politicization. They don't necessarily go together. So one has got to have a significant degree of skepticism about democratization on the Russian space. Um, but that skepticism can't be thoroughgoing simply because there's no country in the world for whom democracy is not in some form, a reasonable option. But if you talk about politicization, democratic or otherwise, um, aimed at something like a certain kind of 
liberal democratic ideal or otherwise, then I don't think that the problem is as deep as we might think, because I don't think that um, culture would explain most of the situation we're looking at. We just condition it. Um, I think if you like sociology gives us more there um, and that is just how things generically work in any modern society rather than culture i think culture plays a big role and there's a special culture of fatalism in russia but i think what's fundamentally missing in russia is just two things a set of um ideas about how change happens so a set of agent uh, sort of an account of agency um and we saw this a little bit with the um kremlin approved oppositional figure nadezhdin um, there was a possibility to express political sentiment um, in a relatively safe way. And a certain number of people went, went, went through with that, even though the gains were going to be so marginally small as to be close to zero. So I think that as soon as there is a uh, a sense of what's going to happen, how and by what means, and as soon as that is attached to some kind of a vision, um, things can shift. Um, uh, so there is nothing magical there that would stop massive activization of Russian society of the kind we saw in Belarus, as long as these two conditions are met. Uh, the trouble is that we're very, very far from them being met. I think we have um, some sense of some Russian oppositional figures developing a capacity to politicize the situation, but it's very limited because it requires more cracks in the regime to go anywhere. But there is an absence of a vision. The last person to have a vision in that country was Gorbachev. You might think his vision is incoherent and self-refuting and unsustainable, but he was the last man to have, if you like, a political strategy. Um, on the Russian space. That needs to change. What I would say, however, is that the reasons for the lack of strategy among Russians and the reasons for our lack of strategy toward what support for Ukraine means, where we want to go, where we want the Russian space to go, are in part the same. We don't have a picture of what the hell should be happening in this world, except the sense that some of the things that have been happening don't add up anymore and don't work like they used to. So it's very interesting that, um, you know, people on different sides of very different kinds of political challenges are facing similar issues around reimagining the uh, international order and coming up with alternatives to a situation that um, I think a lot of people rightly feel has rather run into the ground. And the last question here really leaps out of that, and that is Ukrainians are very finely tuned now into what, what's happening uh, in Berlin, Washington, Paris, uh, London, etc. And they have to be to tune into those conversations to understand what armaments they get, what they can depend on, how they're going to orientate their military strategy in the absence of provision of certain things. With what's happening in the US and the potential 
long-term lack of uh, military support uh, reviving. I mean, it's highly uncertain at the moment. Uh, it may even be indefinite. Are we now in a position where Ukrainians who do have a relatively clear uh, view of what victory is, even if they can't explain exactly how that's going to happen or if it's realistic, their view of victory is taking Crimea. Crimea is the pivotal point of uh, victory in terms of regaining control and agency over their economy, territory, and delivering Russia a very clear and demonstrable defeat, but also justice for the crimes that have taken place, getting their children back, the hundreds of thousands, or tens of thousands, you know, the figures vary, of the children that have been taken to the Russian mainland, and of course there's accusations of uh, brainwashing, militarization, all sorts of things. So Ukrainians have a fairly clear idea of what that means. They want to rebuild their country, which means having control over the economy and the territory and, and so on. If they don't see a clear strategy amongst the Western partners, and if they don't see the provision of munitions and so on to deliver upon that strategy, Ukrainians may well take matters into their own hands. And I think we're seeing some signs of this with the extraordinarily bold attacks on Russian uh, oil refineries, LNG port near uh, St. Petersburg and others. This is perhaps a hint of what a Ukrainian strategy might look like. Um, ignoring perhaps the pleas, red lines, limitations that may or may not be placed by allies on it, it may decide that it needs to uh, enact its own strategy for its own security and defense. Um, what do you think is the chances of that? What are the, what are the risks here? And can Ukraine actually execute a strategy in the absence of Western support? Or is, is the, that really going to be uh, limitations on that? I think that Ukraine could come up with a strategy that would be a strategy that uh, the West could buy into, but obviously a strategy that involves the West needs the West to um, be in a position to buy into it and execute on it. I think that the things you've said are roughly right in the sense that the less support Ukraine gets from the West, the less boundaried what it does on Russian soil will be. I think there is also a connection quite straightforwardly be between how stuck the front is and how much the war moves onto Russian soil. I think that's inevitable. And that will include... Um, situations that generate significant civilian casualties on the Russian side. Um, we're going to see, it's plausible that we will see mass civilian casualty events in Russia in 2024, 2025. And the the, the more uh, isolated Ukraine is, the less constrained it will be in terms of what operations it prosecutes on Russian territory within its military capabilities. I still believe that there is no way around that caterpillar of factors, uh, politicizing, uh, reforming the ex-Soviet space via, um, you know, uh, a strategy for a, an international order that the West has, 
which is, of course, then dependent on democratic capacity. Without that, taking Crimea is neither here nor there because Russia will try to take it back. Um, and it's going to be a military question and, and a question of economic industrial capacity as to whether Russia will be able to take it back. Um, but short of that caterpillar of factors being implemented, I don't see I don't see um, Ukraine taking Crimea, which is a very remote possibility at the moment, as necessarily ending the war unless it topples the Putin regime. What we can say pessimistically is that Ukraine would probably require a kind of Russian collapse to take Crimea in the sense that, of course, I can't make any military comment. That's far beyond my expertise. But all I can say is that politically, Western powers were never deeply enthusiastic about Ukraine taking Crimea at any point during this war. And quite frankly, now, virtually anybody in Washington, including the Biden administration, would see Ukraine taking Crimea as a kind of undesirable headache, which means that Ukraine takes Crimea under conditions of Russian collapse. Um, so my own analysis certainly takes me with a high degree of confidence to the conclusion that uh, for many months, the West was open to Ukraine taking Crimea with a, with a tentativeness and an openness, but it was never going to back that up and say, that's what we, that's what we stand behind. Um, so the way Ukraine's going to get Crimea, if it ever does, is via a Russian collapse or via regime change in Russia that leads to Crimea being returned to Ukraine um, without it being um, occupied by Ukraine, either under duress, because Ukraine's uh, on the cusp of being able to occupy it, um, or uh, simply because it serves the needs of Russian domestic politics to return Crimea to Russia. But in the context of where we are today, I mean, these are far, far-fetched uh, possibilities. So, you know, if you're asking me, where are we with Ukraine taking Crimea? Well, it would have to be in the business of doing that alone, because the major Western powers aren't behind that. And... Um, they're not going to get behind it, um, short of something like perhaps the full realization of that caterpillar we painted. Um, and that suggests as well that, unfortunately, uh, any sense of full justice um, and security are also contingent, actually, on a, on a Russian collapse. Um are we looking at a scenario here where it's a, a race to the bottom? It's it's who crumbles first, Russia or the US? What what might crumble first is US discipline in its support for Ukraine, and that would dramatically change under the Trump administration. I would give a warning there that there's a degree of co-option that occurs in major democracies and Trump would be more constrained than some people with the most catastrophic expectations feel. 
but nevertheless it would be certainly bleak for ukraine and spectacularly unpredictable um so U.S. democracy is overwhelmingly likely to outlast Putin's imperial enterprise. But that doesn't help Ukraine because a disengaged U.S. democracy is not, is not going to bring about the kind of stability, the kind of development, the kind of reversal of just depletion and diminution that Ukraine is experiencing in terms of human resources, in terms of its territory, in terms of folks who are out of the country who must be offered um, incentives to come back. Um, so it, you know, this is a very, very difficult uh, situation for Ukraine. But I believe that um, the best way for Ukraine to get us involved is to engage in this wider conversation about the ex-Soviet space and, in fact, about the global order. Now, practically, that means Ukraine getting interlocked in a complex set of relationships which make it more indispens indispensable on the international scene, getting involved in different regions, which means that what Ukraine asks for has to be reckoned with. But it also means, I think, Ukraine offering certain possibilities to um, the West about how the international scene might be organized that generate engagement and that are appealing, which sort of lands us in this place, which says, we're not going to fix this problem if we treat it as an isolated problem. There's something really seriously wrong with the international scene and we're of course having democratic challenges at home the more answers we generate to these two interconnected challenges the better positioned we're going to be to solve this problem and that's why my feeling is the best thing um, uh, uh, one can do from the point of view of helping ukraine is to try to trigger as much as possible that kind of that kind of re-evaluation. It's obviously very perilous to be a country um, in, in an existentially vulnerable situation at a time when norms and practices are in decline and disarray. Um, the norms and practices of big actors who you need to approach your challenge with a degree of systematicity. Um, but I think, you know, that connection is absolutely vital. Um, and one of the sort of dangers in our discourse is sometimes to assume that everything is okay if we solve this problem and we chase Putin out of Ukraine. It isn't because how he ended up there is itself a reflection of the fact that things weren't right with the international system. There's a lot to, to dig in there and uh, and explore. I'm certainly going to be printing out a transcript of this. I think going through with a fine tooth comb to get other ideas uh, to post people in videos and so on and uh, improve, I think, especially that conversation around sort of strategy, the bigger picture, and not just treating this as a, a local singular problem or a matter of personalities and so on. Uh, Vlad, it's been 
hugely uh, stimulating talking again and uh, very much appreciate it. I know the audience will as well. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again. Thank you so much. And my warmest wishes to you and to your channel.